Hello everyone and welcome to Fascinating Nouns, your stopping point for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. A forum where we explore the peculiar, strange, offbeat, unusual, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe. Oh, that's a lot of words. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn, and tonight, this episode marks a quantum leap forward in this podcast. On my website, danieljglenn.com, I will have links to video, audio, and photos of all the stuff we're going to talk about this evening. My guest is Jack Lance, who's a very interesting man of extremely diverse tastes. He has one of the largest collections of Japanese woodblock art prints in the world a museum-quality set of Asian stone figurines. He's a musician, a writer, and conductor of big band music. And finally, he has an absolutely incredible toy train collection that has been featured in several publications. Jack, you are one of the most interesting people that I've ever met. Uh, I don't know if eccentric gazillionaire explains you particularly well but, <laughs> but you have a lot of interest and um, when I, I came here for, for uh, I was part of, I'm part of an antique auto club and I met you and your house is like a museum but not like creepy Adams family museum there's just a lot of really cool things here and as you look around uh, well, we have a lot of stuff to talk to talk about but um, how did you let's talk about your background a little bit how did you how were you able to kind of accumulate all of these things well, the Japanese art dates back to when I was stationed in Japan many moons ago. Uh -huh. was in the army and met my wife and we got married in Japan. She was there uh, as a DOD teacher teaching uh, elementary students on the army base and I bumped into her at uh, choir practice one night and a year later we were married. And Ever since then, um, the Japanese connection has been really strong for us in our marriage, and we love to go back to Japan. And, and we started collecting Japanese art when we were there. We read a book called The Tale of Genji, which has now developed into our having the largest collection of uh, Japanese woodblock prints on the subject of The Tale of Genji. In the world, is that true? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm absolutely. Gonna I'm going to take some pictures. We'll put them up on the website because I want people to. I want people to see. I mean, it's an amazing collection. I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. And you have a book that's um, book just came out last last October. It was um, funded by um, Scripps College here in Claremont. I didn't and, know that. And then published by a Dutch publishing company. It's it's a rather unique book because it's on uh, the tale of Genji, as I mentioned. Uh, old Japanese subject dating back to the late 10th, early 11th century. So Japanese subject on an, a collection put together by Americans. Okay. The editor of the book is German. Okay. <laughs> and the publisher is Dutch. Is that right? <laughs> so it's a rather international project. Wow. Um, what is the Tale of Genji? Just Ta Tale of Genji is a, the first novel ever written in the world. And it was written by a woman in a Japanese court, as I mentioned, the late 10th, early 11th century, um, a lady named Murasaki Shikibu, wrote this novel, has 54 chapters. It was a woman who wrote it. The woman who wrote it. Oh. In a male-dominated society when right. women, women were not educated, she was a member of the court and wrote it about another person in the court, 
you know, most novels are actually based upon fact anyway, and, right. and, 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 the, and the writer's imagination. So this is her imagination about this uh, Genji who was the son of the emperor, but not by his number one wife, by a, a wife further down the chain. So he could never become emperor. Okay. And, and among, and it talks about his exploits and the many women he meets and, and beds along the way, about the poetry he writes, the uh, singing. He, he's an artist, a poet, a musician, and, and of course an athlete to some extent and, and you know, horse rider and so on. Wow. Um, so when you say the first novel. First novel in the world. So I guess because I'm, I'm not a smart man, so correct me if I get this wrong, but I mean, this is after the Greek and Roman empires, the, after the Egyptian empire. I mean, they had written language. Yes. And I mean, the Odyssey is, I mean, it's a novel now, or was that, is that considered an epic poem? Is that not technically a novel? It's considered an epic poem. I, okay. I guess uh, I'm... <laughs> I'm not a literature expert. <laughs> well, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> so, okay. So what the first technical novel? Yeah. I always like to know. I like to know these distinctions. Yeah. This is very important. Um, so you you met your wife. Is your wife Japanese or was no, she? She's American, born in New Orleans, born in Louisiana, and signed up to be a DoD teacher, Department of Defense teacher. Huh. And as is typical with the government, she signed up to to go to Germany. That was her first choice, and she ended up in Japan. Oh wow. And and uh, taught uh, third graders there. So I take it this was not during World War II. <laughs> this was during the 1970s. Okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't now, know. I mean, how old do you think I am? No, I don't think then. you're that old. But I don't know. When you said Germany, I was thinking to myself, hmm, I don't know a lot of wars. Okay. So okay. in the 70s, you guys met in Japan. Yep. yep. And were you in the service? I was in the army. Yep. Oh wow! Thank you yes. for serving. Yeah. Um, and so you, let's, because you've had, you have a kind of an interesting career. Let's take a step back. Okay. So um, you, tell, tell me a little bit about what you do. You recently retired. I just retired at the beginning of the month, actually, May 1st. So, so I'm not sure what retirement is yet. You need to wait a year to ask me what that's <laughs> <Okay>. all about. <laughs> but so you retired from, um, your company was, uh, what did they do? Did they... It's, it's Miyachi Unitech Corporation. Huh. And we make... Um, laser and resistance welding machines to make micro products. So among the things we, we weld together, we make machines that weld together, are cardiac pacemakers, the hard disk drives in your computer, a lot of the sensors in automobiles. Okay. Any microelectronic, not nanoelectronic, but microelectronic part, um, Lots of medical device products, lots of electronic products, lots of automotive products. So we all, make all the automated systems that weld and mark and cut those. Okay. And we do this in Monrovia. So this is a manufacturing company here in LA area, 200 people in Monrovia building these machines that are going around the world. No kidding. Yeah. And it's, so it's a Japanese company, but it, it's technically it, American jobs. So this is an American it, made manufacturing here. It's American manufacturing. The Japanese bought us about 10 years ago. Oh, so oh, that's, so that's yeah. relatively so, recent. Yes. Oh, okay. And you'd been there how long, if you don't mind me uh, 24 years. No kidding. Yeah. Um, did you always want to be in, in were you an engineer by, by, by no, study? I'm, I'm, as you said, I'm peculiar, but <laughs> <laughs> in college, I studied music composition. 
No kidding. And then I went in the army. I was an ROTC, went in the army for eight years, got out, went back for my MBA and went into business. And I've always, in the army, I always did logistics and manufacturing, uh, ammunition manufacturing. And then outside the army, I do electronics manufacturing. What, so you, now when you say munitions uh, manufacturing, like what did you put together? Um, the, the whole munition. What, I ran a, a depot in Okinawa that did offshore manufacturing for Vietnam. Okay. So during Vietnam, a lot of the ammunition that um, was used in Vietnam would lie in a rice paddy and rust and deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And they would ship it back to us in Okinawa mm -hmm. and we would take it apart, strip it down to the base materials, replace the propellant, replace the explosive, replace the fuse, put it back together, rebox it, and then ship it back to Vietnam. So you can really put together this stuff from scratch almost. Um, are you on any government watch lists for any <laughs> terrorist organizations? <laughs> are are you know. highly sought out by Al Qaeda? That's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. So you so you would rebuild all that. I'd never yes. I'd never knew anyone who, who's done yeah, that. The nice thing is uh, people think that the government wastes a lot of money. Actually, the government tries not to waste money. Yes, the government wastes money, but it tries not to. And one of the ways was to reclaim this ammunition yeah. that that had deteriorated in the um, environment of Vietnam ship it back, not to the U.S., but to Okinawa, so not so far. Mm -hmm. And we had 500 people, half of them were Okinawans. While I was there, we gave Okinawa back to Japan, so they became Japanese. Mm -hmm. And half of them were U.S. military, and we did all the work there. 500 people on a, on a 3,000-acre uh, ammunition depot and, and remanufacturing line. Wow. Um, so when you, so you left there, and then you went into so then you went you transitioned from that into lasers and robots. Yeah, actually, I was transferred from Okinawa up to mainland Japan to the staff. While I was there, I met my wife. We got married in Japan, Japanese style ceremony. We were wore Japanese kimono. Oh wow! We were pulled from the base chapel to the officers' club in rickshaws. Oh, really? One yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Uh, anecdote about that is I decided we should do this in rickshaws, but rickshaws aren't very common today, and they're all owner-operated. Uh, th and they're not more Japanese, they're, that's yeah. not more Chinese, that's Japanese. Well, that's also in China as well, okay, okay. but the, they're Chinese versions and Japanese versions. Okay. A lot of things in Asia are more common than one would guess, huh. but in, in any case, I, I got a friend of mine, Japanese friend of mine, who was used to going down in the Geisha district in Tokyo at the time, mm -hmm. to go down and befriend a couple of these owner operators, the guys who pulled them at night to pull the Geisha <laughs> from, from place to place, yeah. and asked them if they would come out and do this extra gig on a Saturday morning. Right. Because, of course, they weren't working on a Saturday morning. Right. So. <laughs> That's, so you sent him down to like, be a diplomat. Yeah, so, and he arranged it. But all, and I sent an army truck down to pick them up and bring them out. And they were all nervous that these Americans they were going to pick up would be 250 pounds and break the rickshaws. Right. <laughs> these are army, these are army guys. That's and they, they arrived and waited for us to come out of the chapel. And my friend was with him, of course. Uh -huh. And he said, you could just see the relief on their faces as they realized <laughs> we were not so big, and not so heavy, <laughs> and the day was going to be okay. 
<laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> your connection with Japan is very strong. Right. So right. W- where do you think that comes from? Like, what do you think's your, um, like the, the synergy that comes from? That? It's, it's interesting because I had, until the army sent me to Korea, Japan, Thailand, I was never very interested in Asia, so courtesy of mm. Uncle Sam, mm. I, I gained a, a big love for, for Asia and multiple countries there, and particularly Japan. Uh, but in addition to this Japanese art, we have Chinese art and Thai art and mm-hmm. Khmer art and so on. And those are, those are the figurines that, that yes, are Yes, those are the figurines around the house. Okay, yep. we'll get to those in a second because I want to talk about the wood block, Japanese woodblock art. Yes. What is that? What is like the definition of that? How do they make it? What is okay. it? Okay. Uh, Japanese woodblock prints are a phenomenon that started in the 1700s and reached their apex in the mid-1800s. And they were started by Tokyo area artisans the, who, it was really quite a publishing industry mm-hmm. because it, it entailed artists who would travel around Japan or use their imagination and draw scenes, draw them and paint them, fill them in colors. And then another artist would convert that to stencils that could be laid over cherry wood blocks and carved into the wood block. Then the wood block was laid down, such as on a table, and painted with the colors that needed to be printed. And then a piece of paper, rice paper, was, was placed on top of the wood block. And then a thing called a baron, which is like a bean bag, was used to rub that paper into the block to pick up the color from the block. Wow. So it's much more complicated than what we think of as when we were as children, took some little block and pushed it down on a piece of paper and printed yeah. our name or something. This, this is to, to, to depict a scene. So they could do infinite gradations of color. They could do all sorts of different colors. The, the complicated fact was that each color would require a different wood block. So to make oh. one print could be 10 or 12 wood blocks. Now if the colors didn't touch each other they might be able to carve it so that one corner was yellow and the other corner was red but there aren't too many colors that are isolated only one portion of a block. Right. Wow. So it's like a a primitive printing press in a way. Yes. Because it's a very similar concept. It's a similar concept but with a lot more artistry and a lot more finesse and and the Tokyo area artisans did invented this industry because at the time they wanted people who visited Tokyo, which was becoming the capital of Japan, not yet officially the capital of Japan, they wanted them to appreciate the art of Tokyo and to take something back with them to their home place. The Japanese shoguns had set their capital up in Japan in Tokyo even though the emperor was still down in Kyoto. But they required the key figures from the countryside to come visit Tokyo periodically. And the artisans wanted to sell them something that they could take home. So they wanted to make some money and and give them something small enough, light enough, that they're, again, walking at that time, there weren't trains or airplanes, that they could take home with them. So that was the uh, origin 
of the Japanese woodblock print industry. So it's, they were kind of like souvenirs. They're kind of like souvenirs. Except very expensive and hard to make. <laughs> well, they were hard to make and, and I think relatively expensive for the time. Right. In, in these woodblocks, there were various um, themes. Generally, they were historical themes. There were some landscape. There was a landscape industry, but the most popular ones were various historical themes. One of them was the tale of Genji. Okay, and so then, okay. And what was, had happened is the tale of Genji, which is this late 10th, early 11th century novel, was written in a language that Japanese of the 19th century could not read. So, okay. so a book publisher got the idea to update the story and to retranslate it. But the author he hired started out and the first couple chapters, he stayed pretty close to the original story, but he used his imagination and he changed it. He updated it to the 16th century. He modified the story to be attractive to the people of that era so he could sell more books. Right. And he chose an artist to illustrate the book. So what is most fascinating is these books in Japanese are called ehon or picture books. The artist would draw the picture and then around the picture would write the story, all of which would be woodblock printed. Wow. And the book became so popular, the artist decided to make woodblock prints on his own, just not connected to the book, but just standalone prints to sell. Uh -huh. And then he had students and other artists, and, and it became a 75-year cultural phenomenon to do Genji woodblock prints. Wow. So he kind of went into business for himself then. He, he went into business for himself. Meanwhile, the artist took this story, which he updated to the 16th century. He took the, the figure of Genji, who was a womanizer and who had many girlfriends in the original. Here, he turned it into a story that, turned, that seems to us, being Westerners, an, a, a reinvention of the Excalibur story, King Arthur and so on. So the emperor's sword, called Kogemasa, was stolen. Mm -hmm. And Genji, being this illegitimate son of the emperor, decided to go out on a quest to recover the sword, which was the symbol of the emperor's power. And in the process, he bedded a bunch of women, including the daughter of the woman who stole the sword. <laughs> really? <laughs> so it sounds like a contemporary story. Right. Not, yeah. <laughs> with with uh, medieval overtones, but in Japanese guise. Wow. And, and so Genji is really quite an individual, and this book, these books became bestsellers and had to be reprinted. Yeah. And in the, the era, the books were published uh, chapter by chapter every few months. So the original concept was to do a couple a year, but it became too popular, so he had to produce more. So he, he'd do three or four a year. Wow. And by the way, you know, Dickens, roughly a contemporary, Dickens in the UK, all of the Dickens books we know were published in the same way, chapter by chapter. We read them as a whole book, but they're actually published like magazines. No kidding. Yes. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
everything, Oliver Twist, Tales of Two Cities, and so on. We really published chapter by chapter in a magazine kind of format and later put together. No kidding. So in, in Japan, same phenomenon. Genji was done that way. And the government became suspicious of something that was so popular. So they started harassing the author and even put him into jail. And then he died. And we don't know whether he died because he committed suicide or somebody killed him or the government killed him or whatever before finishing all 54 chapters. He only finished 38. So several, the publisher got several other people who finished them, just like people finished the James Bond oh, novels right, right. later. So yeah. in this case, uh, so there are multiple sequels, all of which are still Ahon with these big uh, picture images as the foundation of every page. And as these books went along, they became so fancy that a picture would start on one page and continue on the second page. Or sometimes you'd have to turn the book uh, at a right angle in order to see the picture because the picture was really more important than the story. It told the story. So they're almost like comic books, really. Well, yeah, today uh, people might say they're manga, which are Japanese comic books, but they aren't yeah. comic books because it was, it was a novel, just like, you know, well, there's graphic novels. Look, I'm a, I'm a comic book fan. You may, okay. I see the disdain in your eyes. That's fine. <laughs> um, I, I, I can appreciate that. But graphic novels nowadays tell stories that are much better than your throwaway comic books right. you know, from the okay. 20s. Okay. And they have you know, a lot of a graphic novels, one book, one story. And yes. usually the pictures are more important than the story. However, their actual writing is also very important. Yes. So it's similar. I'll say it's similar. Okay. Um, at least it, it, the way I'm hearing it. And, and the way they did that, it sounds more like a television show where you did chapter by chapter, mm -hmm. you know, is that kind of more similar? I to think so. I, I think um, that analogy works. It's more like a telephone, uh, television show, hmm. chapter by cha chapter, they kind of see what the audience response is to the previous chapter and then take the next chapter accordingly or... Oh, oh, they really, so they, t they take in feedback. Oh, well, It yeah. is like a TV show. Just like TV, exactly. Oh, so Dickens would listen to the people who read the first chapter. I don't and know then, about Dickens, but I know Tale of Genji was that way. No kidding. Yeah. And then when, and also like in TV, I, I love this analogy, because also like in TV, when a showrunner leaves, they get someone else in to finish the series exactly. and do the next series. Exactly. And they did that here. And they wow. did that here. Wow, oh, crazy. <laughs> um, and, and I think your analogy to to comic books or contemporary comic books, which in Japan are called manga, mm -hmm. is probably a, uh, appropriate. Yeah. Um, manga can be weird, though. They get, they get yeah, a little manga crazy. Has, has, yeah, they can be strange. Yeah. But at Scripps College here, they teach a course of taking Genji from the 11th century original through the, this 19, early 19th century Ehon to manga and how it's evolved, how oh, the wow. story has evolved uh, through not just the story, but through its use, depiction, and art. Oh, that's interesting. I like how there's all, I mean, if we're going to continue the comic book story, because I like where this is going, <laughs> it, what they're doing, because Man of Steel is coming out soon, not to yes. date this podcast in any way, but they've, what they've done is they've kind of done a reinvention of Superman, which is they're all archetypes, and it seems like... Obviously, America's not the only one who's ever done this, but it's, it's kind of cool to hear it happen in other cultures mm -hmm. where they have their type of stories and they 
keep redoing it and show you how it's evolved and how yeah. the character is the same but different yes. for a new generation. And yes. it's interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, well, let, let's move on before we run out of time. Let's move on to your Asian figurines. Okay. So now, how did this start, and what are they exactly? Because I don't know. I'm looking at them, but I don't know much about them. Um, how long? Like, was it like a? Did one person manufacture them? Is this a cultural thing? Is it a company thing? They're. Um, it depends which country they're from. So the, the ones from Cambodia uh -huh. are uh, from the Khmer Kingdom, which was basically the 10th century through the 14th century. Okay. Reached its peak in the 12th century. So our figures are from that 11th, 12th century uh, flowering of the Khmer culture. We don't know where all of them are from, uh, because we bought all of them outside of Cambodia. Today, you can't export them from Cambodia, but the ones that are outside can be freely traded. Okay. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. And, and the Cambodian government has not made a big push for repatriation of anything because they have others left. I was going to ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> you get so, knocks on your door. So, so we bought them in Hong Kong. We bought them in London and so on. But um, these are, are figures from temples. In, in one case, um, and we've visited all of these temples, all of them that have so far been excavated in Cambodia, including some that nobody ever goes to. We actually had to take a boat ride up the Mekong and then get on a bicycle and bicycle for a while and then climb a hill to go to one that has just barely started to be excavated. No kidding. And, and we went there because it's interesting. We wanted to see things before anybody started to raid it. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's that not to say that over the years somebody has already raided it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, it happens immediately almost as soon That's as they right. open it up. That's right. Um, so these are all original. I mean, these are these from absolutely. the... Absolutely. Yes, sir. Wow. These and, are original. And, and they're, I guess what I'm trying to get to is the phenomenon, because they're from different countries. Was yeah. this an, a Southeast Asian thing? Was there a dynasty that had kind of ruled the well, area? the Khmer or? dynasty ruled across what to the parts of what today are Laos, Thailand, and, and Cambodia. So we have a group from there, half a dozen from there. Then we have a group of Chinese from the Tang Dynasty. So entirely separate, different country, different era. Tang Dynasty was 700 to 900 AD. So then we have figures that were Chinese tomb figures that were made for tombs there. And one, one in particular is about uh, four and a half feet tall which no is kidding. exceptionally large, so it must have been made for an important figure. Yeah. And it's an, what's called an earth spirit. So it's a part animal, part human being, part fictitious being, kind of designed to be a protector of the tomb. Okay. And, and this one was found in some pieces which have been glued back together to its full height, four and a half feet, in what they call a museum repair. So when they glue it back together, they make it obvious that they've glued it, so you know that. So you know it's not counterfeit, or you know it's not, n not um, put together from various pieces. So they'll, they'll make the seams a little more obvious. I did not know that. Yeah. They really do that? Yeah, so that's how you can tell oh. whether you have an original or you have somebody, one that somebody has counterfeited and trying to make oh, a fortune from you. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and what are these made out of? Uh, these are actually uh, pottery made in a kilt. 
So they're all hollow, so they could cure. Okay. Um, now, what about the, the little figurines behind you? They the look like they're made out of pewter. Or okay, some kind of those are made out of pewter. Now, now that's a different thing. The, those are um, another, this contemporary collection. These are called the Streets of Old Hong Kong. And a um, company that made lead soldiers branched in the late 70s into making the history of Hong Kong or trying to depict Hong Kong uh, of the 1890s. Okay. So, so those are all what this, this company, King & Country, has made to depict Hong Kong of a certain era. Okay, so those those are so those are contemporary. Those are contemporary. Okay, yeah. I may have gotten those confused because I looked at those and I thought those were the because like man, those are those look are pretty over new. In a little um, niche next to the uh, fireplace, you see a, a large yes green and white and orange. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And so these and these the pewter things, those are made by one company that right. kind of right. And okay. And did you have the and entire painted and so on and and so they come out with some every, every year and we of course collect them because we have to have all of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask if you have every one that they yeah, have. Yes. So do you have some in storage or is this the... Um, no, that's it. Oh, but, this is but we're running out of space <laughs> in that cabinet. As big as that cabinet is, we're running out of space. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Um, well, before we leave Asia, I want to make one point to the okay. audience that I got to see that they didn't get to see. We had to stop for a second because you were getting a delivery of Japanese art. Yes delivered by an Asian gentleman. So yes. do you insist that this happens? Do you insist that only, <laughs> <laughs> only the Asian culture is allowed to come into the home? Or no, is that it? Only the US Postal Service can <laughs> only say. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Your, your reach yeah. is far and wide. But, I wanted to but, but the, yeah, the point is that we continue to collect uh, Japanese woodblock prints. Yes. And we have galleries around the world that keep an eye out for us because they know our subject. Yeah. And in this case, this is some prints that a gallery uh, in, in Japan found for us, sent us images and said, would you like to buy them? And these are here on approval. So if we like them, we'll pay for them. If we don't like them, we'll ship them back to Japan. Wow. Um, so l let me ask you this uncomfortable question. How much does one of these things go for? Like uh, the the let's say a mid range. Let's say I was in the market for a mid range. You know, not not a rare piece, but not something that everybody has. You know, something in the middle. What is this? Well, the for? nice thing about woodblock prints is yeah. that you can buy them for fifty dollars. No kidding. Uh, the ones that aren't so um, artistic, perhaps, or more common, and that are in mediocre condition, or you can pay fifty thousand dollars for very rare, very exceptional condition. So it, it depends upon, first, how many exist today, second condition, third, and this is truly third, the artistic subject. Okay, and but that's subjective. I mean, you can't really and, put yes. a, that's all The basic. third is subjective. The first two are, are, can be quantified. Yeah. So we collect only those in perfect condition, pristine colors, unfaded, because of this era, which is early 19th century, these were all made with vegetable dyes. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so if exposed to ultraviolet radiation of the sun, mm -hmm. they fade. The purple becomes gray, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, too. I mean, it doesn't take right. very, very long quickly. for it to decompose. So the ones that are on the walls are all behind uh, 
99% UV glass, museum mounted, etc. Mm -hmm. Plus when we leave the house, we have metal shutters on all of our windows and doors. We push one button and these, <laughs> and these shutters come down and the house is turned into total darkness. <laughs> it's also more, more secure too. But sure, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention is that yep. these are in threes. So there's the, the, these are the high end. You can buy those singles. So the fifty dollar ones I described would be a single image of what you see in threes. Okay, that's what you're describing three would just be yeah. a single image. And a lot of of prints, in fact, most of them are just single images, much smaller people than what you see in these. Mm -hmm. Much smaller image because they're trying to pack what we see in three into a single. Got it. Okay. okay. And then the high end are to make triptychs or triples where they take the scene and divide it into three. But of course, then collecting them today, we have to collect those that match. So the right. color has to be the same across all three. Now, an interesting anecdote on this is that to put this together, we had publishers and, and block carvers and original artists and the printers. And the publisher never trusted the printer if the printer was supposed to make 200, to make only 200. Probably they made 205. Maybe because there were a few bad ones, or maybe because the printer wanted to sell a few on his own. Okay. So since the triptychs were the high end, uh -huh. often the publisher would have a different printer print the middle block. Okay. So if they printed extras, it wouldn't make do any good because they uh, wouldn't have all three. Right. One printer would have the outer two with a hole in the middle. He couldn't sell any on his own. Uh, and the one guy with the middle was missing the outer two. That didn't make sense. Right. He couldn't sell any on his own. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> it's, counter, it's counterfeit protection. Back, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now wow. there's one over on this far wall, and actually six. Yes, yeah, notice that. That's very unusual. Wow. And that's a lateral six, and then over above the fireplace, is, an, is three and three that, again, one, three or over three more that turn into a full scene. So it's very, very rare that they made six that would make one whole scene and that you could find them today. Right. All in pristine condition. And someone willing to sell to let them go. Right. <laughs> if you wanted to own them. So yesterday I got a call from a dealer in uh, Seattle who was offering some prints and said, by the way, I bought your book and I've noticed that I have a triptych in there that I now have figured out from your book is only half of a six-sheeter. Really? I'm, and he said, oh. so now my triptych isn't worth what I thought it was because <laughs> I'm missing the other three. <laughs> and it's because of you. Did he, is he, is he, he says, and it's your darn book. <laughs> He's not suing for reparations or anything. Is he? <laughs> Um, so let, let's, let's, I don't want to run out of time because there's a couple of things I want to get okay. to. Um, originally when I came over, uh, I saw your, your train collection fascinated me. Yes. And so you have, a, so it's model trains. Right. And you were describing all the pieces. This is a, a collection that spans almost the beginning of the model train era and goes to, mo I mean, it's a, it's a very extensive collection well, for what I can Well, the tell. model train era started in the 1880s, 1890s. Okay. And all of the trains then had three rails. Most of us today think of them as Lionel, but there were Marks and Ives and other manufacturers. Okay. So the ground was the center rail. And 
and but they because they had three rails, they didn't look real, and they were fat. Okay. In the 1940, a company called Gilbert bought American Flyer, which was a three-rail company, and then the war started, and they had converted had to convert their factory to making uh, things for the war, mm -hmm. particularly munitions components. Mm -hmm. was in, and they were in New Haven, Connecticut. In the meantime, they had some of their engineers in the back office invent a two-rail version, which okay. they then came out with in 1946. After the war was over, they could convert their factory uh -huh. back to making model trains, which we which is American Flyer, and which competed against Lionel through the rest of the 40s, 50s, and 60s until American Flyer went bankrupt. So what we have upstairs here is a full room of American Flyer that we run inside. And, and we have been collecting. I had American Flyer when I was a young boy. My parents bought it. Um, we, there were, I have a brother and sister. They, brought, they bought trains for us. We each had our own layout. Oh, wow. Actually, w it was all one layout, but we each had our own loop that we could run on the layout, so the three transformers. <laughs> but my brother and sister weren't interested, so I inherited those trains and have expanded that by collecting a lot more. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's what we have inside. And then outside in the garden, um, garden railways are becoming popular today. Mm. And there are several manufacturers, including a German company called LGB that make uh, much larger trains. So they're trains large enough that you can look at them in a garden and they look real, whereas a little inside train would get lost among trees and bushes and so sure. on. Sure. So okay. they're much larger outside. And what we do outside are German and Swiss trains to okay. contrast with the American trains that are inside. Oh, okay. I, don't want, I don't want to do a Santa Fe inside and a Santa Fe outside, so you have a big Santa Fe and a little one, that's kind of boring. That'd be ridiculous, Jack, <laughs> that'd be ridiculous. So we're doing uh, German and Swiss trains outside. And these companies are still in existence, so these companies yeah. are still they, making... They, they're being bought and sold because uh, the vicissitudes of the economy affect the toy business and the model train business. but. Um, LGB is still a German company. It's now been purchased by a company called Merklin, or in English, Marklin, that also makes model trains. And by the way, they are a customer of ours. They use our welders to weld small connections oh, in oh, some of the locomotives. It all comes full circle. It now I understand. <laughs> now I understand. You got a guy on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, that seemed, I like that movie of yours. You always put a guy on the inside to get you. Got to put a guy on the inside. That's right. Inside. <laughs> so, what's the state of um, model trains now? People are still buying, collecting. Are they? People are still buying, collecting. Unfortunately, the collecting of the antique trains is declining because the people that are interested that grew up with model trains are older than I am, even older than I am, if that's possible. <laughs> World War, from World War II. <laughs> <laughs> really, from yeah, World, World War II. <laughs> and they're dying off, and so the prices of antique trains, which skyrocketed, are now coming down to maybe reality, uh -huh. um, getting more reasonable. And the next generation is into other electronic toys, but there's still another generation coming with trains. And one of those things they're doing are the outside trains, the garden trains. That's something that's, mm. that's becoming popular, particularly in Southern California, yeah. because of our 
environment. You know, right. Climate works for that. <laughs> it's it works for anything. Uh, garden railways are an American thing, a British thing, and a German and Swiss thing. Okay. And and by the way, they run in the snow too. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. Oh. So it's though it's those four countries. In in Japan, it's not a big thing because nobody has a yard big enough to run a train. Right. And yeah. the houses aren't so big, so even little trains aren't so popular in Japan. They exist, right. but not very many. Yeah. And in China, it hasn't caught on yet. Yeah. But um, Germany, Switzerland, uh, UK, and the US. So uh, what? Um, so you got into this because you grew up with it. Like, and yes. That's, and that's yeah. kind of how your passion yep. was built from that. Yes. And luckily, my wife likes it and enjoys it. <laughs> that's <laughs> key. That's, that's key to a healthy marriage, Jack. <laughs> Take it from me, the guy who's not married. Um, so the, what's your oldest and rarest piece? Are those like what you will go after first? Like when you're, um, like okay. for me, when I, when I have collections, I always want to see what's the most rare, coolest thing I can okay. afford to get. Like how, okay. is that what so you this, for first? This American Flyer S-Gage two-rail version yes. wasn't invented until during World War II. So okay. the first ones came out in 46. So that my okay. oldest piece is 1946. But okay. what's fascinating about one of my 1946 pieces is it's a tank car. And it's a, a shell oil tank car, and it's sway-backed. The tank itself bends, almost like a hot dog. Okay, so like sags in the middle. Sags in the middle. Uh -huh. Because at that time, this was their first attempt at making plastic cars, and they couldn't make the plastic strong enough that coming out of the mold, it would stay straight. No kidding. And it sagged in the middle. That's really funny. So it, what's real, and they destroyed lots of them because they weren't good. So to right. have one that still survives and yeah. still sags, yeah. you know that's original. Right. By 47, they figured out how to strengthen the plastic and keep it straight. So I have a, a straight 1947 version. <laughs> so just one year apart, they figured yeah. it out. Yeah, they figured it out. Isn't it funny how the screw-ups are always worth more? Mostly because they're more rare because people that's like, right. oh, no one wants exactly. them. But it's funny because even like one of the most rare stamps is one that's printed upside down. Right. You know, there's certain baseball cards that were printed strangely and there's a hundred in existence and that's right. what everyone's after. It's just that's funny that that's, that's the right. one that... Uh, so was it difficult to get? How do you like track one they're of these things They're difficult to get, but courtesy of eBay and the web today, you yeah. can buy anything. So you know, 20 years ago, it was hard to get things Today, it's easy, and it's right. easy for send you to people to send you images of things. It's easy for you to calibrate whether your source is reputable or not, right. and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so is this and, and there are lots of toy train conventions, particularly in the summer, for various scales, for outside trains, inside trains, uh, operating trains, collecting, and there are a variety of... of um, conventions this summer we're not going to any last summer we went to several and next summer we will so are you part of it do you do you normally go and like do you speak are there conferences are there clubs are you no, part of any of this not normally no. I, you know I'll speak at the Japanese woodblock print uh, things but on trains normally I stay in the background so is this a nationally ranked collection I mean, like, do you, do you, is there any recognition like the similar with your woodblock or is this just for you your own personal I haven't told any anybody what all the trains we have, and we do have a bunch of trains and art in a storage unit, not uh, air-conditioned storage unit off-site, so it's Whoa. not all in the house. Uh -huh. But um, uh, LA Times 
uh, home section three years ago featured us. Oh, wow. Our train collection and our art collection on um, December 26th issue. Oh, cool. And Not then bad. Classic Toy Trains magazine featured our uh, inside trains and did an eight-page spread on it several years ago. So you're getting the recognition you deserve. Is that well. what's happening? <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, now, what's your favorite piece? Because that's not always what the rarest one is. Like, I have a comic book collection, and my favorite one is the first one that I bought from working towards it. Okay. You know, like, I worked for this comic book. Okay. That's my favorite piece. Like, do you have a story behind, like, your favorite? Mm. It's like people asking me what my favorite piece of music is, and yeah. part of that is depends upon my mood and, and what I'm into at the time. But yeah. um, so one of my favorite pieces is in 1952, American Flyer came out with a circus train, mm -hmm. and they took uh, a torpedo bullet nose locomotive, painted it red. It had previously come out in other colors, silver and blue, painted it red made a yellow world's greatest um, uh, passenger car and then had several cars with um, cages on it with animals in it. Okay. And they only did it one year. And then they produced cutouts that you could sprinkle around it to make uh, the tent and the animals and the acrobats and so on. Uh -huh. That set to get today is still one of the most sought after sets. Right. And, and when I was a little boy, I always wanted one and we never could afford one. <laughs> and now it's the price has skyrocketed, but we have one. <laughs> <laughs> the situation has changed significantly. <laughs> it's always that way, you know, it's funny how that works. Um, the thing that kind of struck me about the collection and toy trains in general, because I didn't grow up with them, mm -hmm. is they're very interactive. Right. I mean, really interactive because mm -hmm. you have the trains which are going around, mm -hmm. but the w what your focus goes to is the individual pieces that are there. Like you have, I thought you were going to talk about that you have a torpedo. You've got, I think it's three versions of a torpedo that's right. one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about those. I, I have right. a rocket that you can shoot, and that's one of yeah. the funny, funny things, and the kids love to see this. Yeah, it's great. Be because it... It, I can shoot it directly up. One, one version shoots directly up. One shoots at a 45-degree angle. Right. And, and, and one uh, blows up one of the... Right. Uh, and the, then I've set one up to blow a, a boxcar up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what the, the first one, the one that shoots straight up, that yes. was the one that, like lawn darts, was eventually banned because it wasn't safe. It was hitting people. I don't know that it was banned, but a lot of mothers didn't think much of this. Right. That was the first one they came out with, and they only did that one year, and the next year they immediately put it down at a 45-degree angle, more predictable trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty crazy. <laughs> but you have stuff like you even have one that um, it walks up a ladder and turns off a light right. and then right. comes back down. Right. So there's things like that. And the, you have a good memory. You remember I, I'm, all I'm really, I, I do. <laughs> and, but then there's a, there's a couple other ones that, um, like there's cattle that go inside. Yes. You yeah. have one where it's cutting wood, and the yes. wood comes out, gets cut, and then put onto a, 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 a 
car and gets turned around. We fooled you too. It really mm -hmm. doesn't cut the wood. It, it just sure looks, looks like, it. like it. It looks like <laughs> it. It really does. <laughs> it's amazing. And yeah. these are small. They're very small. Right. And they're all, you know, kind of interactive and very simple mechanical technology. I mean, this That's isn't, right. you know, your company wouldn't produce it. This isn't high-end electronics. This is, right. you know, very simple mechanics. And that's kind of what struck me. Yes. And I think as a kid, I would have liked to kind of play with it's those. It's amazing so. that in the 1950s, they could do this. Yeah. And kids couldn't damage them. They were robust enough yeah. to survive. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. of course, some kids damaged some, and some adults damaged some. Sure, yeah. And I still damage some. But, <laughs> <Right>. but, <laughs> but they could make them to withstand, withstand kids playing with them. Yeah. And that's difficult, because kids yeah. can break stuff pretty... Yeah. I've got a brother who can break anything in, in five seconds. It's kind of yeah. crazy. Right. Um, so I'd like to... To me, the trains are... The collecting is secondary to the operating. Yes. So I belong to two... Um, uh, model train groups. One is the Toy Train Operating Society. The other is the Train Collectors Association. The first one sounds like an, a union almost. <laughs> yeah, it does. But that's for people who buy trains and operate them. And, and as you said, it, this is fun because it's interactive. So I can yeah. go up in the train room and get lost for an evening. Sure. Yeah, you know, just running trains. Gee, I haven't run this one in a while. Let me take it out of the out of the closet, yeah. you know, oil it up, put it on, see how it runs. Of course, it takes a little while to get going, and then, yeah. then, it, then, it, then it runs well. Well, because the electronics aren't as predictable and as, um, I guess, uniform as more modern stuff. Right. Because, I mean, it, what does it run on? How does it, is like a... It runs on low voltage, so, low vo okay. so it's 24 volt max. So, so the transformer to run the train can, goes from zero to 24 volts. Okay. And all the lights are on 18 volt fixed voltage. Oh wow, okay. But but it's like you're an antique car collector. Yeah. Your and 1950 six Plymouth mm -hmm. is a lot easier to work on electronically mm -hmm. than today. Very true. Yeah, yeah I mean, because the battery, as you know, is half, it's a six volt versus right. a 12 volt, right. which causes problems because like, like I've seen with the toy trains, there's not enough oomph sometimes. Exactly. Yep. And like with my car, it's very difficult to get it to start sometimes because it doesn't have the like, you know, the kapow to kind of right. get things going. Right. But yeah, the electronics are very different back then. Yes. Um, well, let's move into the last thing that, that we're going to talk You do many other things, but this is yeah. probably near and dear to your heart. I didn't realize you had a degree in music composition. Yes. And so that was your first love then. Yes. And so you now, since you've retired, mm -hmm. you have kind of are pursuing um, your music career a little more full yes. force now. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that. Okay. I, I have a, a big band, 17-piece mm -hmm. big band mm -hmm. that we do... Updated versions of the Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, Count Basie, Duke Ellington charts that everybody recognizes. Mm -hmm. And we do some of the traditional ones, but we enjoy more doing updated versions. And we, we do that for charity functions and concerts and, and uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and so on. So that's a piece of it. And then I direct a fairly large... Um, musical uh, ministry at our church where we have a 50-piece orchestra and a 50-voice choir wow. and I end up having to write arrangements for that as wow. well as arrangements for the big band as well as conducting all of this so it's it's a it's an organizational thing not much different from organizing a business sure <laughs> and uh, but it's a, a musical thing that I can participate in so it's another interactive thing like running the trains. Right, yeah. yeah. 
That's a, so. What what instruments do you play? I didn't know it was seventeen pieces. I assume you don't play them all. No, 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 no. I I a piano primarily today, mm-hmm. but over the years I I play piano, organ, clarinet, tuba. I uh, used to do summers doing tuba in the Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus Band, where their regular tuba player would take a vacation and I would sub on on tour in the Northeast. That's what I did during college. No kidding. Yeah. Here's this is this full circle for me. My roommate is an ex Ringling Brothers clown. And oh. yeah, and actually okay. one of the previous episodes I talked to him. Okay. Um, you guys probably weren't contemporaries, but he, but he, when he traveled around, he was telling me stories about, I, you probably didn't do all the traveling. With I, the, I did uh, New England traveling. I didn't do all around the country, but you know, we would do four states in New England. Were you in the train? Did they take you in the train there? Because yes. he traveled in the train. In with the train, like correct. So what was that like? I want to hear what your story is. Well, well, you know, circus people are wonderful people. <laughs> <laughs> they are wonderful people. Yeah. yeah. They're interesting personalities, but yeah. musicians are interesting personalities, and I yeah. think people put together radio shows or and podcasts are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going with this, Jack? <laughs> so you got this. But I'll tell you, yeah. What we were doing, um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm-hmm. which is the place of the famous uh, fire where the tent burned, and, mm. and 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 they made a movie of it. But we were inside in an arena. And the band play, is playing in the corner, and we're playing a march, and uh, everybody's parading. This is the end of the show, and the elephants, and, every, and everybody's parading, except the elephants missed the corner, and they came right at the band. Uh-oh. And they were heading right towards us. And we're just pumping away the music, and you see the front line of the band disappear. I mean, they just run for their lives. The second line run. Well, I'm the tuba player. So in the back row, they had the drummer, the tuba player, and the organ player. Yeah. And so we're holding our own, and we're just <laughs> playing, and the organ is kind of taking over for the band that's now dissipated. And luckily, they got the elephants turned before they got to us. Wow. And... Uh, but the hard thing was to keep playing because the elephants stank. They really, yeah. <laughs> they smell and, bad. And, and you're on a tuba, you're gasping for breath. <laughs> <laughs> and so you got to breathe in and blow it back you out. you got to breathe in and oh keep going. God. You can't say, wait a minute, I'm taking a break. Because there were only three of us going at that point in time. That's awful. <laughs> That's terrible. And plus, you have the big, you can't move an organ. You can't move a tuba. Right. Like running with well, a the tuba. tuba, I could have run. But, yeah. yeah but, but they not got to. they got it turned in time. You know. Wow, <laughs> your commitment to the show is honorable and respectable. Um, so now tell me, what's in the seventeen-piece band? I mean, just for a you know, pretend uh, I'm a rube. Okay, it's five saxophones. It's okay. a, the traditional seventeen-piece band today is five saxophones, four trombones, four trumpets, piano, bass, and drums called the rhythm section, and a vocalist. Okay. And of course, since we have 16 ugly guys playing, the vocalist is female. <laughs> I would, <laughs> I would hope female. so. Yeah, there you go. There you <laughs> Actually, go. we have some women in, in playing too, but, and I don't mean to imply that they're, they're ugly. <laughs> they're gonna the guys are ugly. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to listen to this and give you a phone call immediately. Uh, and you, so you do a 50-piece band, and that's with, that's with the church. That's with the church. That's with strings and woodwinds and everything. Thing, yeah. and, and of course, many of the people in the 70-piece band also play in the church orchestra. Okay. So we just did an Americana concert on Memorial Day Saturday. Oh, no kidding. Where, where we did you know, Aaron Copeland and Charles Ives and, and, and you know, Battle of the Republic and America the Beautiful and so on. Sure. Um, so who are your influences then, like personally, like musically? Um, 
because I do everything from classical music to jazz, it's a whole bunch of people. Uh -huh. I can't say it's it's only one because you know I love a variety of the classical composers. We do everything from from Bach to Mozart and Haydn to Brahms and Wagner. We do a little bit of everything, um, and then in jazz. We do everything from Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, but I do more Count Basie, Duke Ellington are more my models. And, and when I play piano, I try to play sometimes like Ellington and sometimes like Basie, depending upon what the piece is. Mm -hmm. We just did the Duke Ellington Concert of Sacred Music, which was the big band and the church choir and um, tap dancer um, in April. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the, the last big thing that Ellington did before he died was his concert of sacred music. He actually wrote music for three different concerts. No kidding. Which he did everywhere from San Francisco to New York to Westminster Abbey. No kidding. Yeah. Um, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna press this a little bit further. Who got you into music? Like, there, was there any one thing that kind of got you? Everyone kind of has a genesis into music. Was your family it, into it, music? Was your... It, it, <laughs> we went to a high school, my brother, sister, and I went to high school where the football team was terrible. Uh, me too. Okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, everywhere I Athletics go. Athletics were bad. It's really bad, yeah. <laughs> I knew we had something more in common. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so music became the thing. The band became the thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we got the bug, and I talked to my parents and said, I'd like to play in a band. They said, you're not going to play in a band until you learn to play piano. Okay. Because piano is something you can do the rest of your life. Yeah. If you play trumpet in a band, you need other people to play with. Nobody wants to listen to a solo trumpet. Tell so that to Louis Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you must learn piano first. Yeah. So by then I was 12, and I started when I was 12 playing piano, and then I played piano for a year, and then I started on clarinet. And, and, and they were wise, actually, because I still play piano. Yeah, yeah. And I still have the other instruments, but don't play them very often. Right. <laughs> so they were very wise. And, but you stuck with it. So but then I stuck with it. Oh. And, and my brother is a conductor in um, northern Minnesota, in Minneapolis. Tra and trains or music? Uh, oh, <laughs> music conductor, music. very good. Okay. Music conductor. And, and my sister still has a piano and plays piano some too. Wow, so everyone's musical. Yep. Oh, yeah. wow. Pa parents are musical or is it just no, My you, mother just played when she was little and not at all. And my dad, um, um, when... I started going to church with my grandfather and we would sing uh, next to each other in church. My dad says, you know, how can you sing with your grandfather? Because he can't carry a tune. He, he never sings the melody. So I said, Dad, and we called him Grandfather Poppy. Yeah. Poppy is reading the bass part as it's printed in the hymnal. <laughs> He's actually reading the music. He can carry a tune. Wow, really? Yeah. So it came from someplace. So it came, maybe, maybe, maybe just skipped a generation. Maybe, yeah. maybe skipped a yeah. generation. That's good. Um, well, let's, we're a little out of time. But before we go, I want you to tell me what, um, like what's coming up. Where, you know, are you playing anywhere around? Like what, what are your, do you have a, like every Sunday you play here or well, anything like that? Well, every Sunday, of course, I lead the, the music program in our church. La Cunada Presbyterian. So that, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes, sense. That makes so, a lot of sense. So I'm kind yeah. of busy. Um, we just finished the Americana concert, Memorial Day. Now we're working on a Pops concert, uh, Hollywood dedication, Hooray for Hollywood, where we're doing only music from movies. Mm. 
Okay. So it could be the theme song or it could be background music for a movie. And we're going to show clips of some of those movies as we sing. Oh, okay. So it's song and dance. I'm using uh, part of my band, eight people from my band, um, and the church choir. And my wife teaches the choreography and has a dancing group. So it's a, it's a show on June 21 and 22. Oh, okay. Um, hooray for Hollywood. And then... Summer, we do a bunch of concerts in the park, so the band will be doing a variety of concerts in the park in the area. How do people find the schedule, get in touch with you? I'd, you don't seem like a Twitter person. I imagine you're probably not on Twitter. No, unfortunately, do you have I, I need to do that. Do you have websites or and anything? And I haven't set up a website. Oh, One Mike. of the things I'm going to do in you retirement work, is, set up a reti is set up a website. You work with robots and lasers. You come on, a website's <laughs> got to be, that's like weekend yeah. stuff. Um, all right, well, Jack, thank you so much for sitting with me, and, um, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Dan, right. it's been great. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a good night.